Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again for this week's edition of All Things Evangelism. I'm here this week with Joseph Scaff, the pastor of the Warner's Bay Seventh-day Adventist Church. He's here with me to discuss the topic for today, which is teaching the gospel through the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I'm excited to talk about this subject, and I want to begin, Joseph, by just reading a verse of Scripture that many people may have never heard before. This text is from Acts chapter 24, and uh, I'll just jump into the text, and and we'll read. Basically, Paul's just, yeah, he's doing what Paul does, preaching the gospel. And and the, the Bible says in Acts chapter 24 and verse 24, But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul has been arrested. Mm. Felix and his wife Drusilla, who are magistrates, come to to listen to him. Mm. And the Bible says they came to hear him speak about the faith in Christ Jesus. Notice what the next verse says. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Mm. go away for the present. And when I find time, I will summon you. What are your thoughts here? I love it because we're like, oh, he's talking about faith in Christ. And then when he explains to us what elements, what aspects of faith in Christ Paul was addressing, he says here about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. So if you hear someone preaching a sermon on self-control, do you typically think, man, that was a great message about the faith that was in Christ. Yeah, we, do, we, we usually don't associate those things. Do we? we divide them and we separate them from righteousness by faith, from faith in Christ, from the gospel. But they're all interconnected, apparently, according to this passage. <laughs> what else do you do with the text? Like, it seems that in, in the church at times, there are people who see a divide between the gospel or the preaching of the gospel and say, a message about the judgment. But here in this text, you have Paul reasoning about a judgment that's to come. And the text is very clear. Luke is very clear. These people came to hear him speak about the faith that was in Jesus, the gospel. And here's Paul preaching the gospel, and he's talking about self-control and judgment to come. Mm -hmm. So what does this teach us? What does this help us to understand? Looking from that passage, it helps me to understand that in every single thing, every single teaching, every single doctrine that God has ever given to us in Scripture, if we look at them, we can actually relate to faith in Christ. We can see them through an angle of seeing God's beauty, seeing God's victory over the forces of evil, seeing through the lenses of what it means to trust in God and to have faith. It's everything interconnected. I can see God's love and various expressions. And so the way to this, God's love is so great, it's so big, that I have to describe it through in different angles, in different perspectives. Um, I think that's what that passage tells me, that all I, these things can be connected to faith. I had this pastor once, he said to me, the devil separates what God doesn't. Now, he was talking, and then he said, faith and works, yes. mercy and justice. Yes. And then he went on to say, for the purpose of explanation and teaching, we might separate faith and works. But in the process of salvation, those things are interwoven, right? So surely we're justified by faith without the the works of the law. And we can talk about that, the justifying power of faith and, and how we're saved because we believe. You can isolate that fact from the rest of the salvation process for the sake of teaching. 
But as far as the process goes, you don't separate that. But anyways, that, yes. that's how he explained yeah. his point. And he said, so the devil tries to, to make there be tension or conflict between subjects where there, there is no conflict. So doctrine and the preaching of the fundamental teachings of Scripture and the preaching of the gospel, the devil separates what God does not. And we see here in the text that God does not distinguish between doctrinal preaching yeah. and gospel preaching. It's all one thing. It's all blended together. And, and Paul could teach about the judgment and preach about the judgment. And it could be said... He was preaching about the faith that's in Christ. Yes, absolutely. And Matt, this is a very interesting topic. I'm, I'm very passionate about it. Jesus himself, he says, if anyone wants to do God's will, he should, you know, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So Jesus is, is inviting us, hey, do you, do you want to do God's will? So go and study doctrines. You're going to learn about him. So true doctrine leads to Jesus. That being said, as I came to faith in Christ, I, I came across so many times with people that somehow, as you said, separating it. And, and surely this is the devil's plan. But at the same time, and I have been guilty of that myself because this is my human nature. I want to have things under my control. I want to be the author and finisher of my own salvation. That's my tendency. And I think that as, as human beings, we can relate to that. And I think that often what generated that push that dichotomy between Christ and doctrines were instances where people, they preached doctrine, but devoided of Christ. They teach doctrine as, hey, here's a set of rules, here's a set of things, but they never actually made that connection to grace, to mercy, to justice, to judgment, to Christ, to the cross. And I think because we missed on how these particular trees were related to the entire forest, and because there is definitely a way that we can preach doctrines without Jesus, then for a lot of people, they're, they're blaming not on the teacher, but they're blaming on the doctrines, but uh, erroneously so. And an analogy that I like to think of myself is the human body. Our human body is beautiful. It's wonderfully made. And there's, it works in an amazing synergy. For example, one way that I would say that we can study our body in the same way that we can study about doctrine is we can look at divide the body in different systems. So there is a number of systems in the human body. For example, you have the, your, the muscular system, the nervous system, circulatory system, skeletal system, the visual system, all these kinds of systems, and they'll tell something about the human body. So the skeletal system, I'm going to see the glory of the human body through the bones and how they are perfectly designed to match one another. They are extremely lightweight and yet strong. And then, But there's a different kind of... Uh, so this is what, let's say, the doctrine of the skeleton. And then we see the doctrine of the muscles, because the muscles are the things that are actually going to give us the strength to carry weight, to move, and so on. And But they're to not separate one another, because guess what? The, mus the, the muscles need the skeleton to lay on top of them. And all of these things, they need to come together. So again, I go to the digestive system. And I can look at the stomach and the mouth and the esophagus and how food is processed and the intestines and all these kinds of things. But they're there to provide nutrients for the muscles that are sitting on the skeleton. So when I look at all the systems together, I'm seeing a beautiful human being that is capable of reflecting the image of God in so many ways, in the movement, in the good works, in the intellect, in creativity, in capacity to love, in capacity to steward nature and other people and, and to be peacemakers and to bring justice even to the cause of our own death. But all these things, and then we're talking about the neurological system, the brain and, and, and the, the decisions, the, the frontal lobe and all these kinds of things. When I look at biblical doctrines, I'm seeing through each doctrine like these systems. 
It's revealing something amazing on in itself about the character of Christ, but I have to remember that all of these doctrines, they're contributing to a fuller, bigger picture of the bigger system, which is God, and a God of love, and a God of mercy, and a God of justice, and a God that is triumphant. Dude, I absolutely <laughs> love that analogy. That's a fantastic analogy, and it, to the point of the pastor that the devil separates what God doesn't. So he, he would say there's inherent conflict between the, the skeletal system and the muscular system or the nervous system and the digestive system, which is they're not. It's complementary and they work together. They combine together to make. That's yes. awesome. Praise God for that. Yeah, hey, the preaching of doctrine, you said devoid of Jesus. What do you think of this? It's like trivia style religion. Yes. So it's thinking that having the right answers in a trivia quiz yes. equates to a saving relationship with God. And maybe you start to preach doctrines devoid of Jesus and fundamental teachings without the essence of the gospel in them infused into them because you failed to see your need of Christ and you failed to see the need of others for Christ. And I'm just wondering if there's not a connection there. So if I'm living out a trivia-style religion, like I've got the right answers, and you think that that's enough, then that's going to reflect in how you preach the doctrines of the Bible. You're just going to think that's enough. If you have a correct understanding, then now you're you're just ready for heaven. And by the way, yes. that also goes for the teaching of the gospel. Absolutely. You follow? Yes. There's tons of people who think that if you don't articulate your understanding of soteriology, or if you don't understand the gospel, the study of salvation, the same as them, like exactly, precisely, mm -hmm. exactly like them, you're lost. Well, isn't that fundamentally the same thing? You're basically yeah. saying that, and, yeah. and before anyone thinks that I'm a heretic and thinks that I don't believe it's important to understand yeah. the mechanics of salvation sufficiently, yes, yes. I just refer you to John 9, where that guy who was mm -hmm. being harassed by the religious establishment, oh, yeah. who mm -hmm. had been healed by Jesus, he's being peppered with questions and he's standing for the prophet who healed him. And, and then finally they say, hey, listen, this guy, we know he's a sinner. Give God the glory for what happened to you, but don't give this guy any credit. And then the guy says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But I know that, I know one thing. I was blind, but now I see. Mm. So this man's you know, salvation did not, was not contingent upon his perfect understanding of Jesus's human nature or whether he was a sinner or not, or all these, that, that wasn't the grounds upon which he was saved. He was experiencing the gospel through his interaction with the son of God. And so we've got to be careful because even when we quote, defend the gospel against just doctrinal preaching, we may be doing essentially the same thing, prescribing a certain way of articulating the gospel for quote salvation. And I do think by the way, it's very important to articulate all teachings of scripture yeah. accurately for sure I'm, i mean we all stand for that but i think sometimes we get caught in our own traps yes. do you know what i'm saying I, I so i know tons yeah. of people don't you like yeah. i know a guy i there was a, i'm gonna get a little bit weird here but when i first moved to australia there was a pastor who mm -hmm. said to me i asked people this question and the question was do you have to do anything to make god love you and he says if they don't just answer nothing immediately i know they don't understand the gospel. And I thought to myself, man, really? Seriously? Like, I would answer the question, no. Like, I don't have to do anything for God to love me. I, yeah, no. But what if someone understood your question 
in a way that you didn't mean it to be understood. For example, mm-hmm. what if they were thinking of it more in a God doesn't force himself upon you, and if you wanted to have a developing relationship of love with God, yeah. then you'd need to respond yeah. to the gospel. You know what I'm saying? And maybe they understood the gospel perfectly, but your question, they related to it differently than you did, and so then now you're going to stigmatize this person as anti-gospel because they didn't answer your little petty question the way that you thought that they should yeah. answer it. You follow what I'm saying? Uh, absolutely. So they're doing like yeah. the rules-based, trivia-based religion. That's right. Salvation by knowledge. Salvation you know, by knowledge. Uh, which is definitely not how we are saved. Totally. And it's the same thing, Matt. If I was going to the doctor and the doctor just asked me one question, are you feeling bad or ill? And said, uh, no, I'm feeling good. Okay, so you're not sick. Go home. No, listen, wait, but you, you don't know. I, I came here to explain to you that I'm feeling good, but I know that sometimes this happens. And Or look at this can of my brain. There's like a big thing there. Don't you want to take a look into that? So it's such a complex thing that I don't think that one, just one question it's going to solve the whole thing. It may reveal some things. It may reveal that maybe the knowledge of the gospel is, is it's not you know as complete as it could be, or maybe that your question is not adequate, but doesn't mean by any means that person doesn't love Jesus, that they don't understand the gospel in a very profound level in their life. We, as we minister to people, we need to really, as the doctor, we, we can have an idea of where they are in their spiritual walk by having conversations and, and, and looking at their understanding of God from multiple angles. Yeah, okay, so the, another verse of scripture that, I want to consider with you is John 5:39 and it's in the midst it's a, it's a verse that you find in the middle of a big argument between Jesus and the religious leaders that extends basically 3 chapters and I'm not saying that it's one argument mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. John records virtually 3 chapters there's events but then there's conflict with the religious leaders of Jesus' day and in John 5:39 Jesus says to the Jews you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life But these are they which testify of me. This verse seems to indicate that all the scripture, all of it, and Jesus in specifics is referring to the Old Testament, all of the writings of the Old Testament on some level testify of him. Therefore, if you're teaching a doctrine or a teaching from the Old Testament, you can find Jesus in it. It can be a testimony of the Son of God. Of God. What are your thoughts there? Because some parts of the Old Testament, right? Like you'd say, okay, the dispossession of the Canaanite people, the rise and fall of of Israel, the the judges and the chaos of that period and the various stories. And so obviously there's those certain instances where we're like, okay, this, Moses's leadership in Israel, that fully mirrors the ministry of Jesus, right? The guy who's born a slave, but he ends up becoming a a king in a palace, but then he identifies with the slaves voluntarily. And then he, through miracles and signs and wonders, he shows them that he's their deliverer and then leads them out into the wilderness. And then he intercedes on their behalf before God when they make mistakes. And come on, man. And then he dies, but then Jude tells us he was resurrected just like Jesus died. So there's so many parallels. You need that in various stories. But Jesus says, they are they which Mm -hmm. testify of me. Therefore, Anything you preach from the Old Testament, Jesus can be found in. Absolutely. And even if you're going to the more, the scarier passages, even take, for example, the book of Judges. There's some hair-splitting stories there, really gruesome. But and they say, where is Jesus here? But sometimes the Bible shows us Jesus by comparison, like in the Moses story, sometimes by contrast. Because the book of Judges, for example, it starts and finishes with the same sentence of saying, in those days in Israel, there was no king, so people were doing things according to their own, the, according to what they thought was right according to their own eyes, to their own understanding. So even when we see some very weird acts of injustice in the Bible, or I can relate to Jesus because I can say, you know what, this is the result of a life where God is not at the center of the human affections. 
And these are the consequences of that. So we can definitely see, for example, sometimes we see God where God is not necessarily. I think about the story, for example, of David and Abigail. We know David was going to commit a massive crime. He was going to kill Nabal and all of his family because Nabal wasn't generous towards David, wasn't just, you could even say. And David was really upset. And then Abigail came and, and she softens David's wrath and she actually talks him out of committing this crime. And, and there's no mission to God there. But where is God? God was actually using Abigail to be a peacemaker and to bring some sense into David. All kinds of circumstances and through the life that God has given her. So Jesus was the one giving that woman that the boldness to even break the social conventions of her time that would be completely inappropriate for a, a lady, for a woman, to go and to speak with another man who's not, not only not related to her, but who's actually an enemy of her husband. And yet God used her. You know, we can definitely see God in every single story. And I think this is an exercise. If you that are listening to us, if you enjoy reading your Bible, and you're, every time that you read your Bible, let me ask you this question. As you're reading it, you ask yourself, you train your brain to ask yourself this question. How is this revealing God's beauty? How is this story revealing God's glory? Is it by comparison? Is it by contrast? But how can I see God's unsurpassing beauty through that story, through that example, through that doctrine? Because if you're not seeing God's ultimate beauty, life-changing beauty from that passage, it means that you haven't studied that passage carefully enough. That happens with me. Sometimes you look at passages that you just look like so plain, and after sometimes you're, you're reading it or you're studying it, and you're, and you're seeing something that you say, wow, this is amazing. Look how beautiful God is from that perspective, from that occasion. Yeah, that's it. And Okay, so the gospel, according to my understanding, is the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of a fallen race of people. So God was yes. in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so God offers us freedom and deliverance through the victory of the Son. That's the good news. That's right. It's not good advice. It's not good information. It's good that's news. Right. It's a proclamation of something that's been done on my behalf and on your behalf. And to confess belief in that is, is and to accept that truly and genuinely as your salvation. That's the gospel. Yes. Like just like believe that, on the Lord Jesus Christ right. and you will be saved. So the good news is that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves yes. through the Son of God. Yes, that God is king, that Jesus Christ is enthroned as a king, that he can rule in our hearts, that he has overcome Satan, he has overcome evil, mm -hmm. he has all, all authority and all parts of him, all of that which is part of the, uh, the victory, the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In Adam all die, in Christ shall yeah. all be made alive. That's the good news. What Jesus has accomplished for mankind in himself. But more than that, it's also the character of God. So Kellen White says, when basically Christ hanging on the cross was the gospel. Mm. And so he, there he is. He's the, the physical representation of the good news. And that statement helps us get a little bit deeper in our understanding of the gospel. It's not just what God did, it's who God is. Yes. And so when we yes. say we need to preach the gospel through every doctrine, we're not necessarily saying you have to tell the resurrection story or the yes. crucifixion story or any of that. We're saying that the character of God needs to be revealed. And, and when we say that the character of God needs to be revealed, we don't mean the character of God according to Joe Simpson or Tammy, whatever. No, the character of God according to how God has revealed himself in scripture and why yeah. that matters on a yeah. relational, personal level. Like, I think that's it. So really you could say preaching God through doctrine or preaching God-centered doctrine or pre preaching doctrine in a relational fashion, one that has practical relevance to the hearer. Absolutely. So they see the application. They see 
the reasoning. So it's not, we're not giving the impression to our hearers, wow, I'm smarter than others and I'm going to be saved because I know this. Because that's just knowledge Mm -hmm. makes proud, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. Knowledge makes proud, but love builds up. Yes. So the doctrinal preaching we preach should be aimed at inspiring love for God and the hearts of the people who hear it. So when I say gospel-centered doctrinal preaching, I don't mean that you have to construct a sermon in such a way that you go to the crucifixion story in every sermon, right? That's not what I mean. But where love is being inspired in the hearts of people because they see, as you said already, they see the beauty of God, the the sensibility of God, the the greatness of God in that presentation, and it makes sense, and they see the reason. That's uh, a few Psalms when it says, worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Psalm 96, verse 9. In Psalm 96, for example, verse uh, 6, honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. When, so when the psalmist is looking at the, sa- the doctrine of the sanctuary, he's seeing beauty. He's seeing God's glory. When, when in the three angels' messages, when we see the first angels' messages, fear God and give glory to him. What do we give glory to him? We're praising, we're exalting God from an unsurpassing beauty, uh, character beauty that we're seeing him. This is what you know, one good way of understanding that concept of glory is very similar to beauty. You know, when Paul says, you know, the stars have one glory and or, or the hair of the woman is the glory of the woman, the word glory is very closely related to beauty. It's hard to explain, but it's a beauty that just goes beyond physical beauty. It's a beauty that is beauty in character, in righteousness, in majesty, in, in, in all kinds of sense. So can I give you an example, Matt, of how I can get like a, a doctrine? And we can preach it devoid of Christ, merely intellectual, and we can preach it in a way that magnifies God. Okay, let's take one that I believe that some uh, of your listeners would be familiar with, the doctrine of the Sabbath. I can preach the doctrine of the Sabbath completely devoid of Christ. I can say, no, there's 10 commandments. One of them is the Sabbath. You have to keep it. If you don't keep it, you're not obeying God. You're not going to be saved. Uh, the Sabbath is the seventh day. It's from Friday to sunset, so Friday to Saturday sunset. And uh, it is a sign, and, and this is it. So you, you have to keep it. That's it. I didn't even use the word Jesus once. Now, imagine if I'm talking about the same doctrine of Sabbath and saying, on top of all these things, and those things, they're not necessarily wrong. They're not necessarily untrue. But imagine if I say, God set aside one day out of the week so he can relate to us, his creatures, in a special way that he doesn't in any other day. It's a day that we can rest in him, that we don't need to worry about the struggles and toils of everyday life, that we can come to him and rest in him that has created everything, that has redeemed us, has saved us, and now he's inviting us to just enjoy him, his presence, his gifts, on that day, we can glorify him. We can rem- he can remind ourselves who we are in him, that we are sons and daughters of God Almighty. God is he when he gives us this gift, in, particularly in our society that is so fast paced that we can be, become modern day slaves of money, modern day slaves of jobs. And God is saying, you do not belong to money. You do not belong to your boss. You belong to God. So so it's in a practical way you're telling the whole world until here you can buy my work my labor but from this point on i'm sellable i am i do not belong to my boss and then we talk about that and then we can talk about how that helps other people see god because if i am keeping the sabbath people are looking at me and saying wow if joseph is keeping the sabbath that means that there is a god that provides for him that he trusts him that he would rather lose his job and not have him keep the sabbath because he believes that the one who 
provides for him is not his work, is not his boss, is not his company, is not his strength, but is a God that even determines, that gives, hey, you know what? I love you so much that you can, I give, I'm giving you rest and the rest that you can enjoy my presence so we can be together on that day. Mm-hmm. Isn't it in a different light? Totally. Isn't it more relatable? Totally. I can relate totally. way better to that. It's, it's sensible. It accounts for the fact that people are reasonable creatures. They have a mind and they, they need to make sense of things and they have emotions. And if you can speak to their mind and emotions with the doctrines of scripture, now I think you, it inspires appreciation and respect and love for God. Okay, so yeah, it was, it was that's a great example. The great example, if you highlight the meaning of the Sabbath, if you emphasize the whys of a doctrine, yes. the whys. Not only the what's, the, but the, the, whys. the whys. That's the most important That's part. right. And the why shows a God who has a purpose. It's not arbitrary. It's not, I'm here, I'm in charge, and you need to do this. Yeah, it's there's purpose for this. There's a reason for me communicating this to you. It's awesome. I love the Sabbath, by the way. Because I read a book once called The Lost Meaning of the Seventh Day by Sigve Tonstad. Oh, yes. And his book on the Sabbath, bro, like, it's an awesome book. Like, it's so good. But anyways, that, that turned my mind on. It, it, that revolutionized how I communicate the Sabbath. And I have found that now I get way less kickback to the Sabbath when I preach it to people who've never heard it than I ever did before because I emphasize more the meaning and the purpose of the Sabbath. And so when you say things like, for example... The benefits, the beauty. If you say to people, hey, listen, okay, the seventh-day Sabbath speaks to human equality. Yes. It's a sign that under God, we're all equal. Yes. In that we're all children of God. We're all made in the image of God. And God wants us to stop one day a week and reflect on the fact that our boss is not is not superior in themselves or an inherently better yes. creature because they function in a position of authority over me in secular affairs. He's a child of God. I'm a child of God. Yes. He can't force yes. me to work on that day, and that's a sign that we're equal yes. in the sense that we're children of God. That's right. On that day, there's no slaves. There's no, no slaves sla- masters. There's no. not the one who oppresses and one who is oppressed. There's not the one who buys and who sells. Not even the animals, because even no. No, we don't. We remember that not even the animals belong to us as humans. They belong to God, because the commandment says, "Not even your donkey shall do work." So that reflects the respect for environment, for, envir- for nature, for God's creation. Dude. We're stewards of that. They don't belong to us. They belong to God, and on themselves, they have their own dignity. The Bible says in in Proverbs twelve and verse ten, "The righteous man regards the life of his beast." We live in this day in this age where people are just goo goo gaga about everything animal, right? Like yeah. they, they per, anthropomorphize everything. But how appealing is that to the person who loves animals and loves the natural world? Like God, and it just makes sense. It, it helps you yeah. to see God is cool. God has good ideas. He's a good person. And the doctrinal teaching of the Sabbath reveals him yeah. as a person. And it's funny because something that people don't oftentimes consider is that the teachings of Scripture reflect the God of Scripture because he's the one who inspired Scripture. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that's just a basic rule of reality. Like, yes. you share, yes. you communicate what's Things in your heart. that are important for you. So the laws of God reflect the heart of God. The teachings of God in Scripture reveal the heart of God. And so to some degree, to some extent, the heart of God should be revealed in all of the doctrinal teachings of Scripture. And in this, we Adventists fail because I believe that the 28 fundamental teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church 
are the fundamental teachings of the Bible. Yes. Therefore, yes. they reveal more clearly the heart of God. And we miss the mark when we teach like, okay, this is a truth, accept it. That's a truth, accept it. And we also miss it when we say, this is how you understand the gospel, accept it. Like, show the whys, emphasize the reasons and the sense behind it. And now all of a sudden, you're showing people, wow, God makes sense, God is reasonable, God loves people and provides for them in amazing ways, yes. and the Sabbath is such a good example. Yeah. Listen, we're out of time. I want to give you the last, I don't know, 30 seconds to just, if you have anything else to say, man, this has been a great conversation. <laughs> it has, and I hope, yes. I think everyone would be blessed who's yes. listened. I've been blessed. Closing remarks in 10 to 30 seconds. You can say no if you want, and I'll just... Okay, well, one day I was playing like table tennis with this boy. His family is an Adventist and he loves table tennis. It was Sabbath. The parents were upset that he was playing, you know, table tennis with me, but they didn't want to say anything. I was, you know, a theology student and they didn't want to offend me. And we were, and as we were playing, we were just like talking to each other. And I was asking, how's school and how's life and how's God working in your life? And we're just like really exchanging balls. And, you know, as we were playing table tennis, and then the family came to me and said, oh, who won the game? Because they're kind of saying, oh, you know, like it's competitive sport. You shouldn't be playing that on Sabbath and I said no one won because on the Sabbath there's no winners there's no losers we're just sitting down playing with the ball a little bit while we're talking about the great things of God and I think that I, I in God gave me God taught me and I hope that boy an opportunity to understand that the Sabbath is not about rules of do's and don'ts but it's about being enjoying the presence of God and of God's people and of God's spirit in a, in a way that it's not possible in any other day of the week well, that was awesome, Joseph. Thank you guys so much for joining us for this edition of All Things Evangelism. We hope that you've been blessed and, yeah, that inspired to more and more preach the gospel through the doctrines and not allow the devil to separate what God does not. God bless you. Take care.